A child of the sun, black my countenance, yet I stand before you in the light of my soul. True feeling and just expression are not confined to any clime or color. Those are the words of Ira Aldridge, America's first internationally acclaimed actor. I'm Emily Auerbach, and this is University of the Air. Born in 1807 in New York, Ira Aldridge spoke out against slavery and became the first African-American actor to achieve success on the international stage. What can we learn today from the story of this pioneering black Shakespearean actor and activist and the barriers he fought against? Joining me for From Backstage to Center Stage, the groundbreaking Ira Aldridge, is Baron Kelly, UW Professor of Theater and Drama and Liberal Arts and Applied Studies, an internationally acclaimed actor, director, and scholar of African-American theater and acting pedagogy who's working on a one-man show about Ira Aldridge. Welcome back to University of the Air, Baron. Thank you. I have to say that when you mentioned the topic of Ira Aldridge, I immediately went and looked him up and felt what I often feel, which is embarrassment that I hadn't heard of him before, and then kind of anger that we have been cheated out of this important figure in the way that history is taught. Um, Do you find when you tell people you're working on Ira Aldridge, if it's people outside the theater community, that in general they have not heard of him? Oh, definitely. And why is that? Well, I mean, for a large part of the, you know, uh, 20th century or so, he's been a footnote. And um, only over the last, I'd say, 45 years now, um, have scholars been really unpacking and trying to unpack his uh, tremendous career in Europe. You know, it's just the way it is, isn't it? Well, and I know we'll get into more about sort of your own journey later, but but I want to start with a bit of that in terms of your journey and why Ira Aldridge speaks to you in particular. You know, what what is important about this figure that has made it so that you're working on a show a one-man show about him and working hard to get his name out there and and to be more than just a footnote. I've uh, always been the kind of person that has loved language. And so when I started to get into acting, really uh, the people that inspired me uh, were people um, like James L. Jones, Raul Julia, uh, Randall Duke Kim, um, Gloria Foster, a lot of these names may or may not be familiar to uh, the listening public. And when I came across the exploits of Ira Aldridge, I was absolutely blown away because um, here was a man that was standing on the stages of Europe, uh, dashing all of the, uh, you know, pro-slavery um, uh, arguments to pieces, um, showing that uh, one could be intelligent and speak the king's English and be a revered figure in the theater in places that had never seen um, a black person before, really. Um, and so that was very intriguing to me. Uh, similar to my uh, PhD research on uh, Earl Hyman, who played Bill Cosby's father on The Cosby Show and uh, Earl passed away a few years ago, but he was also in the trajectory of uh, Earl Hyman, uh, not Earl Hyman, I meant of uh, Ira Aldridge and then Paul Robeson and then uh, Earl Hyman, uh, these people that had these tremendous successes uh, overseas. I guess what's astonishing really about Ira Aldridge is when I look at his birth date, mm-hmm. 1807. Um, the America that he was born into, That's right. an America of slavery. That's right. Now, um, he was born to free parents in New York. Can you tell us something about his upbringing and how he got into theater and you know some of the obstacles that he encountered that led him to cross the Atlantic? Well, he was a, a young man. Uh, his father was a, a minister and... Um, it just so happened that there was an, uh, a black theater company, the first uh, professional black theater company in New York City, 
the African Grove Theater um, in the West Village, what would be known today as the West Village, and um, Aldridge uh, got involved with the um, the theater company, and also at the time he started working for a backstage valet kind of position uh, with a, a Brit by the name of Henry Wallach, and um, and Aldridge would see how uh, Wallach would uh, you know prepare and perform his roles, and I guess he would try to mimic him in the dressing room and all of that, and all uh, Wallach took a shine to him. And Aldridge, even though he had performed, you know, in minor roles with the theater company and his father didn't want him to do that, of course, um, he had this dream of being an actor. And Wallach uh, wrote him a letter of introduction. Um, and, you know, he said, you should go to, you know, you should go to Britain. Um, and so Aldridge, with this letter of introduction, uh, you know, hopped on a boat <laughs> At the age of, you know, uh, 16, 17 years or 17 years old and went to Britain. That's quite extraordinary to me, you know. It is. And when when he left to go to Britain, how much of that was because he could see there was no future for him on the stage in America at that time? Well, I mean, you know, uh, the African uh, Grove Theater, the African Theater Company, they were doing some pretty phenomenal stuff, but what happened was uh, Stephen Price, the manager of the Park Theater, this uh, you know elite uh, sort of white theater, uh, was in close proximity to the African Theater Company, uh, had the African Theater Company shut down because they were in competition. So um, when the theater company, of course, later you know shut down because of that, you know Aldridge had to, you know just wanted to get out of Dodge, and it was just timing of where he was able to try to um, sprout his wings, as they say, you know. Well, I know one thing that you have talked about in a lot of the scholarship you do and in your own life is sort of the problem of not finding colorblind casting, of having all these plays where if you have actors of color, they feel excluded from playing certain roles. How did Aldridge manage to find parts for himself? Well, of course, you know, he was a great uh, – he developed into being a rock star in his career. And early on, um, he capitalized um, by portraying himself as, uh, you know, the son of a Senegalese prince or something. And, you know, he was definitely uh, the uh, – the the oddity that people rush to see when he got these small parts in these particular plays. Uh, now, you're talking about when he went to England. Yes, and, yes. Then, and he pretends, instead of being born in New York, he pretends that he's got an African royal, royal ancestry. Right. Isn't that a bit problematic that he had to act in his real life? Um, you know, it had to create a kind of exotic persona. It's PR. <laughs> it's PR. He knew exactly. I have to say, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was a he was a master at that, and he also called himself at one point early on Mister Keen. And actors used to do that. They used to build themselves uh, sort of after some of the other more prominent actors, and so Edmund Keen was the one of the great actors of the day. So, um, you know, Aldridge started to bill himself as, uh, you know, sort of a Mr. Keen or uh, the African Roscius, uh, you know, the the um, Roman actor. Um, and so he was a master of, he was a master of publicity. I, I can also say, too, the parts that he was doing in some of these old melodramas and stuff, uh, you know, there were a lot. There were there were a lot of pro-slavers in in the UK. The argument for pro-slavery, and then there were certain places like Hull and such, which uh, were very sympathetic uh, to the abolitionist movement. And so, what Aldridge was very good at was having these roles in these particular plays that was speaking out against um, uh, slavery and how he was able to sort of humanize and, you know, cut and make certain emendations to the script uh, uh, to make these particular characters in these old melodramas, you know, sort of sympathetic, you know. 
So that was where he was able to be a bit of an activist was oh, yeah. not just playing the parts but then yep. also making some changes. And I yep. think I read that he was one of the first to speak to the audience then at the end to sort of take his, That's his right. presentation on stage, That's right. do his part, but then speak out in his own voice about some sort of social problem like slavery. Yeah, uh, you know, that was, a, that was the fashion of the day for a lot of plays. You know, the actors would come out at the end and say their, you know, their epilogue or something. But how he used that um, to his advantage and also what he would do, he did a play called The Padlock where um, he would play this buffoonish character and then he'd switch up and play something like Othello. So he was able to show these 19th century audiences early on uh, that he was an actor and that he just wasn't, you know, a buffoon. Uh, you know what I mean? That he could switch up and play these different roles. He was very smart, um, very strategic. Well, and you said it was PR, like when he pretended he was a Senegalese mm -hmm. prince or, or royalty. Um, but but had he just, you know, gone in his own persona as a, somebody from New York who was fleeing America or leaving America because of its um, the slavery and racism and everything else, he wouldn't have made it as far. Do you think? Uh, I, I don't know. I think you know you had to you you think of somebody seventeen, eighteen years old who was probably. You know, a very raw actor, and here is the original kind of, you know, dark-skinned man uh, on the stages in these particular roles that he played, like in Orinoco and all of these other plays. Um, and he knew that people would come to see him, and the managers of those theaters were not uh, foolish. They needed to, you know, fill the bums in the seats. So... Um, he was very, very strategic. I don't think he had any problems whatsoever um, doing any of that. And the way that he governed his life, I mean, it's quite obvious he didn't care about what most people thought. He was into um, just trying to become the best actor and the most one of the most well-paid actors at that time um, on the continent. You mentioned at the beginning that he's sort of a footnote sometimes, and one of the things that's said in footnotes is that in 1833, mm. Ira Aldridge became the first black actor to play Othello mm. on a London stage. Mm -hmm. How big a deal was that? How big a first? Well, it was a, a tremendous uh, first because it was in the heart of, uh, of their empire, of the white actors' empire. And, you know, he challenged the great white actors in the very heart of their empire because um, Keane saw him in a performance at a theater in Dublin and wrote a letter to the artistic director um, saying you should give uh, him a chance. And so Aldridge had this letter of introduction. So when Keane died on the stage, actually, um, in a performance of playing Othello, um, Aldridge was summoned um, to take his place. And that was a red-letter day in theater history uh, for this man to stand on this stage and, um, and perform this particular role. Now, it was only a couple of performances, and so the scholars have said, I mean, because, you know, people were really upset. You know, Aldridge is this black man, and he's in Covent Garden, and he's sort of pawing this white actress, and you know, um, which offended a lot of people. And I believe there was an, uh, a flu epidemic uh, that had broken out, or there was some kind of major sickness that had broken out in London at that time. So the audiences were kind of sparse. And so I think they, the, the theater managers realized that uh, they couldn't have this continue on because there's no other reason that it shouldn't have. His performances should not have continued. Uh, but they only allowed him on stage for, you know, just a couple of performances. It's too bad we don't have, you know, a video or yeah. audio recording of... Ira Aldridge on stage um, reading from Othello, you know, being Othello, um, what, as you're working on the story of, of, of him, are there passages from Othello that you like to picture him reading? Sure. Uh, I can read one if that you'd would be like. That uh, If Okay. Let's see. <clears throat> Othello's, um, the beginning, 
speech to the Senate when he's brought before them of being accused of uh, conjuring witchcraft to um, uh, for Desdemona to you know for her to fall under his charms. Let's see. I'll read a little bit here. Most potent, grave, and reverend seniors, my very noble and approved good masters, that I have taken away this old man's daughter, it is most true, true, I have married her. The very head in front of my offending hath this extent no more. Rude am I in my speech, and little blessed with the soft phrase of peace, for since these arms of mine had seven years pits till now some nine moons wasted, they have used their dearest action in the tented field. And little of this great world can I speak, more than pertains to feats of broil and battle. And therefore, little shall I grace my cause in speaking for myself. Yet by your gracious patience I will a round, unvarnished tale deliver of my whole course of love. What drugs, what charms, what conjuration, and what mighty magic for such proceeding I am charged with all. I won his daughter. Well, that's powerful, and it's, it's kind of magical to imagine Ira Aldridge reading that and so many other lines from Othello on the stage. Prior to that, I assume actors would be in blackface? Uh, that's right. Or, you know, some, yeah, sure. They put makeup on, you know, the tawny moor, some kind of brownish hue or something, you know, and certainly blackface. I, um, you know, Aldridge also had relationships with white women during that period which upset a lot of people, certainly. And there was one incident where he thrashed someone that made a comment. But he was, um, you know, he had to be taken on his own. He wasn't someone that gave up his soul in any particular way uh, to have this career at all. And were the reviews that came in when he played those few performances of Othello in 1833, oh. what, what were the reviews like? Of course, they were mixed. And some people, of course, said that, you know, um, you can read between the lines of all of the racist comments, you know, as far as, you know, he doesn't have the particular skill with language or his lips are too big or this or that and this or that, you know. And, um, you know, people, some, some, some reviews were, were okay and then some were not. Um, it just makes me think that uh, if that man would have, as we'll get to this, I'm sure, if he would have lived and come to the United States, which he was supposed to, he signed a contract to come to the, back to the United States, what would have happened, you know? What would have happened? What would have happened in terms of the racism he would have encountered? For... Uh, racism or where we would probably be as a country with theater. Here's someone, you know, who, you know, the Civil War had just been ended for two years. And here's a black man coming back to the United States to stand on these stages. I mean, I, I shudder to think that somebody would have tried to kill, to, to kill him or something, you know, or he would have faced some kind of harm uh but uh what what would the possibilities have been where we would be today if that would have been acknowledged you know and happened you know and had he not died in 1867 before he could return for that's that right. it was supposed to be a hundred spot tour that's coming right. back home to america more on ira aldridge when we continue in a moment with university of the air I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Baron Kelly. We're talking about from backstage to center stage, the groundbreaking Ira Aldridge, this amer amazing African-American actor from the 19th century who finds himself the first black actor to play Othello on a London stage. He's also, Baron, you mentioned not only the first internationally acclaimed African-American actor, but the first internationally acclaimed American actor. Yes. So so American acting at that point wasn't really having that international reach? 
Not the way that Aldridge uh, had that reach. I mean, he went into he went on the continent, and plus he went into Russia. Uh, because uh, at that point, the Russians had seen uh, or, or had been influenced by whatever the French companies that had, would come through, whatever the German companies that maybe had come through. But as far as American actors and as far as someone that looks like Aldridge, they'd never seen that before. The Russians swear, there are accounts that the Russians swear that he taught them in the 19th century how to read Shakespeare and these accounts of these actors that worked with him when they were in his company um, and such. Because he would, later in his career, he would tour by himself and he would be, he would speak English while these other companies, wherever the countries are, that wherever he was, they would be performing in their their tongues, you know, their languages and Aldridge would speak in, uh, speak in English. So when Aldridge went to London and began acting on stage there, did he sound, I mean, was he trying to sound British? Was he trying to speak the King's English? Or was it, I mean, you mentioned that there were some racist attacks on him in the reviews. Yeah. Was it about the fact that he was an American? I think uh, it had, a, you know, a three-pronged attack on him because he was American and he was black and besides, you know, to hear the American accent as opposed to being on stage with the Brits. I mean, you know, of course, that was probably jarring to people. You think about back in the 1920s and, um, you know, the early part of this 20th century when there was received pronunciation, you know, in British theater, you know, and that was the thing that Laurence Olivier did was he broke all of that because everything else was sounding beautiful like Lawrence uh, with uh, John Gilgood and various other people. Um, and uh, here was a man who was trying to meld some kind of a realistic acting technique on the stage at the same time that these other people were probably just standing there spouting Was he Was words. he playing other Shakespearean roles um, besides Othello? Um, oh, and, yes. and how did he handle playing roles normally played by white actors? Well, later in his career, um, he decided to um, – he played Shylock. He played uh, Macbeth. He played Richard III. Um, That's pretty amazing if you think about the date here that we're in the middle of the 19th century and that right. you have an African-American man while America still going through slavery and the fight right. over it. And he's playing Macbeth and Richard III mm-hmm. and Shylock and doing so – to international acclaim. Uh, the also what he would do is he would leave his hands black, and he would put the white makeup or whatever on his face, sort of in the reverse of what happened during minstrelsy period in the United States. And he would whiten his face and whatever else he would do with the wigs and such. But he would leave his hands black, and I mean I, that was probably a statement to show people that he was a black man, certainly, uh, but that he was an actor, you know Mm. what I mean? So he didn't have to cover his hands with gloves the way even in 1945, 46 on Broadway, Canada Lee had to do that when he acted in um, The Duchess of Malfi on Broadway and he had to put this makeup on his face, this pink, pinkish white makeup on his face, you know. But leaving the hands black... Do we have any indication of how Ira Aldridge felt about it all? You know, that whether he had a kind of double consciousness, whether he would go out and do these things and make the money that he needed to make and play the exotic and do different things and put up with various, um, I guess, indignities that might be asked of him. Do we have anything about what he felt like when the the makeup came off and he went home and he sort of reflected on on all of this? No, not not really. I mean, he was a he was a philanderer. <laughs> I think you know he. It, I, I I've seen letters in the archives in Russia where uh, you would see how women would write these letters to him. Uh, you know, after they had seen a performance and, uh, you know, you can sort of read between the lines that they're sitting there watching this man because he was obviously good looking and is different. The This other was different. Um, and so he capitalized on a lot of that. I mean, he, he, he also had, um, 
one or two illegitimate children. I mean, you know, so he was uh, he was something else. Uh, I mean, uh, there was an account of him meeting uh, uh, Alexander Dumas in in France, and so when uh, when he met Alexander Dumas in Paris. Uh, Dumas said, je suis, je suis negre, je suis negre. You know, I am black too. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you know, Aldridge really ate it up. <laughs> I, I noticed that, you know, in the the list of awards that he had received and yeah. honors that he had bestowed upon him, it included a, a, a huge list of various Mm-hmm. You know, royal figures that he had performed or appeared before, you know, Leopold of yes. Belgium, Frederick, right. uh, William of Prussia, and, and, you know, people from Austria and all over the place. Uh, tell us about his performances and tours and reception outside of England. Well, I must say one thing that, um, that's been acknowledged, that the Duke of Saxe-Meiningy, uh, when he was a young man, he saw Aldridge's uh, performances. Now, the Duke of Saxe-Meiningen is uh, acknowledged as being uh, this uh, one of the first, if not the first, uh, theater directors or what you would call someone that would put together the stage pictures in a particular way and uh, how the actors were moved and all of that. And he watched the performances that Aldridge did or that Aldridge had... Um, you know, uh, sort of conducted uh, with particular actors. And so that kind of influence uh, stayed with him so that when he started to develop, I guess he capitalized on that. I um, When Aldridge started uh, performing on the continent, I mean, I think Bernd Lindfors, who is the true Aldridge scholar in this country, I think Bernd Lindfors is calculated that Aldridge traveled something like 11, 12,000 miles. During that period, you think well, there were no airplanes, so that's what, boat, uh, buggy, uh, you know, carriage. Oh, that's um, that's, you that's know. astonishing to picture that. And- it's a hard life. Uh, it's It's very hard, you know, cold and... All of that sort of stuff and no shock absorbers, you know. <laughs> and um, and so Aldridge was going into places that had never seen uh, Shakespeare performed. Maybe there were some translations that had been done, but, you know, uh, but well, he was performing. He was a humanitarian at heart. I truly believe this man was a humanitarian. He loved people. And so those accounts of his friends and the people, the actors that he met and how after his death they spoke about him so lovingly and carried those lessons with them, um, you know, as their careers, you know, continued on into the early part of the, you know, the, the 1900s even, you know what I'm saying. And that was, that's just quite phenomenal to have somebody... Like that. Well, let's say he was about to go on tour to Prussia, you know, to, mm-hmm. to perform. Um, who arranged that? I mean, was he his own sort of manager, agent, um, or was he under the umbrella of something else that would arrange these tours? And He, he had, you know, of course, he had his own uh, – he, he had his own dictates to these particular managers. But there were people – that did handle certain business for him, you know, back in those days. I guess people would write these letters and they would have these um, uh, these communications that were saying on such and such a date, so-and-so is going to be uh, arriving and this is what they uh, – this is what they are supposed to get, you know, in gold or whatever the currency was for him to uh, get these shekels. Um, and what would the playbills – Say, in other words, if if they had to do a tagline about Ira Aldridge, if if they were saying "come and see," if, you know, you said that he was good at PR, um, and yeah. I'm trying to imagine sort of the equivalent of playbills or flyers that would announce his arrival and how he was being billed. Well, you know, some of them would say, well, early on in his career, certainly the African Rothschilds, you know, uh, who uh, the great uh, Roman actor, and uh, However, Aldridge, you know, of course, Othello was his mainstay, you know, and of course that was titillation in itself of 
of seeing a black man on the stage with this uh, white woman and all the other drama that was happening. I believe his reputation uh, sort of preceded him. Those managers had to um, publicize him in a particular way. People knew that he was a black man who had particular, uh, as they say, street cred um, in the theater. Um, And so those audiences were coming to, you know, expect him uh, to take that whole site in, you know what I mean? So I, I think that's... And, and you mentioned, you know, that it would be clear what he would be paid. Um, mm. Do we know anything about how successful he was financially? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Very successful. Very successful to have a couple of homes in the UK, in, in Britain, in London. I, I was at one of his homes standing on the front steps, which is, you know, was, was his last mansion that he... Uh, or whatever last house that he lived in, um, and um, which has been turned into just separate flats now. Um, uh, very successful. I mean, the the equipage, the uh, the horse and buggy, and how he would dress and conduct himself. He stayed out on the road for a long time. He stayed out for months and years. Of course, he would come home for breaks and such like that. But he stayed out. And he was quite um he was quite well off. I wouldn't say that he was like a king, but during that time for these actors and such like that, he was quite uh, well off. The thing is though he um it wasn't until later in his career that he was invited to perform in a West End theater, which is where the legitimate theater supposedly. Uh, was at that time and today it's like you know the West End uh, where you know the equivalent of Broadway and all of that but early on his career he performed in more East London sort of um, um, houses which you know did sort of music hall kind of you know lower kind of grade uh, performances and uh, it was later in his career that he was invited to theaters like the Lyceum Theater where the great Henry Irving at one point was the manager um, to perform, but that's after he had garnered all of this acclaim um, in Europe, you know, of course. So then he's legitimate, you know, after all these years <laughs> to come back. And was he and, performing somewhat under the radar in terms of, well, I'm just thinking of all the British writers at the time, like, you know, Charles Dickens and so many others who sometimes will weave into their writing popular performers, actors, singers like Jenny Lind or others. Um, but I, I don't recall seeing a mention of Ira Aldridge in any of the 19th century novels that I've taught. Um, is, is he still sort of a bit under the radar? I think for, you know, folks in the theater certainly uh, may know who Aldridge uh, was. But, you know, uh, Charles Matthews, who was a humorist, um, in the 19th century, when he was in New York City, he wrote a sort of a satirical, um, a satirical piece about the black actors in the African uh, theater company, Af- African Grove Theater. And he came back to London and he performed this and he made these, you know, he, he, he just really just made this ugly satirical way that these black actors were performing and with the dialect and all of this sort of stuff. Um, but as far as Dickens and any of these other writers acknowledging Aldridge, no. Where Aldridge was more acknowledged was in Russia, as certainly in Russia and in Eastern Europe and uh, in some of the partitioned countries without question. But in Russia, he was he was lionized. Mm. By God, he was lionized. I also understand that there's a plaque about Aldridge somewhere in England. Uh, well, the, you know, the blue plaques that are outside of the homes of particular f- famous folks uh, – that have lived or were birthed or whatever grew up in these particular homes. Um, and uh, a friend of mine tried to track down a supposedly a chair, uh, a plaque on a chair at the Shakespeare Memorial Theater that was supposed to have been donated in Ira Aldridge's name, but she was not able to find that. Um, and to this day, I, I just, I don't think that that has been found because they probably took those plaques off and, 
they you know because he also things. helped as a sort of theater manager for a while did he not uh he had his own companies he didn't manage uh one particular theater he early on he had actors that he would travel with out in the provinces as they say out in the regional areas but he didn't uh have a theater company per se. Do we know anything about the kind of method? You know, we think about, and I know you've published on acting techniques and methods and so on. Do we know anything about what kind of actor he was? A, a, very engaged, captivating, you know. At that time, the acting style, what we call realism today, you know, certainly... 50 years ago, every age has its own particular um, what they would consider psychological realism in the acting. And uh, I can say that at that period, a lot of actors were probably ranting, uh, exaggerating. Um, you know what I mean? It wasn't uh, full of gimmicks. So more stylized and almost mm-hmm. like what we might consider caricatures. Yes, right. That's right. That's right. And even in Britain in the early part of the, you know, in the 1900s, 30s, 40s, you know, it was more musical. It was like, oh, Juliet, the honey of thy breath, all of that sort of stuff instead of just bringing the truth through the verse, finding the truth in the verse of what you're saying. So Aldridge was probably closest to whatever that was. And when he was being very emotional... He probably scared actors. Now, there are accounts of people getting afraid of him on stage because he was putting himself into it and certain actresses being terrified. And, you know, I guess he would turn his head upstage and say, don't worry, I'm only acting. I mean, in Russia, I guess, well, let me see, Horoshom, it means like uh, translates and says, it's okay. Horoshom, Horoshom. It's okay. It's okay. You know. <laughs> I guess that's the greatest uh, compliment an actor can get is when people think that he actually is the character that he's portraying. Uh, well, but it was also used against him because people who hated him or actors that were jealous would say that, you know, he was uh, throttling women on the stage and he was manhandling them and all of that sort of stuff. You know, that made great copy in the newspapers. You know? Again, more PR for him, I guess. Hey, more PR, more PR. In a, in a certain way, do you find mm. as you're looking into Ira Aldridge, do you feel sometimes simultaneously inspired by him, but a little bit troubled um, by his sort of, I don't know, milking the exotic milk, or, or do, you, do you just find it um, inspiring that he took advantage of whatever he could to succeed? He took advantage of whatever he could to succeed. I mean, look at Hattie McDaniels, for God's sake, who played Mammy in Gone with the Wind. She was the first African-American actress to win a supporting, Mm -hmm. you know, Oscar. But she was able to put humanity in those roles and subvert those sort of stereotypes. Um, and so Aldridge also, for his time period, did the same thing with a lot of those, certainly those melodramatic roles that he was playing. So that's talent in itself. And, you know, to be in the heart of an empire that, you know, when, when most of your brethren are in chains in the United States and here he is being able to be free and speak the king's English, even though there were people that hated him, um, that took tremendous courage and tremendous guts, you know. We've been talking about Ira Aldridge in the 19th century, but when we come back, we're going to talk about him in the 20th century, shows about him, including the one that our guest, Baron Kelly, is working on about him as well. More in a moment on University of the Year. I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Baron Kelly, and we are talking about from backstage to center stage, the groundbreaking Ira Aldridge, 19th century groundbreaking black actor, who reached international acclaim with his performances of Othello and other roles and really broke barriers. Um, now, Baron, you know, we, we hinted at the fact that he was going to come back to America and then tragically died right before being able to do that, died in 1867. In Poland. Mm-hmm. In Poland. Um, so... As we look at his life in the 19th century, what do you think is the most important 
aspect of it that carried into the 20th century that makes him an important figure for you as an actor and scholar and director um, and for other actors that came after him? Well, that here was a – well, first of all, when Aldrich died in 1867 in Wuch, Poland, it was another 60 years or so before another black man was able to trod the boards in Britain. And that was Paul Robeson, who played opposite um, Peggy Ashcroft uh, in Othello. And I'm guessing, I mean, all of us have heard of Paul Robeson, not so much of Ira Aldridge. What did Robeson know about Aldridge? Robeson uh, knew about uh, Aldridge uh, because at one point, Aldridge, uh, Robeson was being uh, tutored by one of Aldridge's daughters, Amanda, for singing. And when she had met um, and started to work with Robeson, she gave um, Paul Robeson some earrings, or I can't remember, earrings or a bracelet that her father um, had left, I mean, because a lot of the stuff was lost and such. And Robeson was a very smart man to to understand the the trajectory of that lineage, even though it was 60 years or so after um, the death of Aldridge, you know. So, I mean, it was just, it was it was phenomenal. I mean, but again, uh, you listen to certain commentary with um, Robeson playing that role. It wasn't a, it wasn't a grand slam, you know. So he had to mature into that role later um, himself, but it was a, it's a testament to have him, to have had Robeson on that stage uh, with Peggy Ashcroft playing uh, Othello. Um, yeah, it's, it, you know, people today, when they see Denzel Washington, he's, he's getting ready to come out in the Scottish play with, uh, with Franny McDormand, uh, talking about film-wise, and, um, and then he had done Much Ado About Nothing, and then you would see Adrian Lester in certain roles on film. People forget that, that is a, there was a huge struggle, long history of struggle, uh, to even have that be accepted. Um, so, you know, James Earl Jones, I, James, James Earl Jones is in his 80s now, so people forget about, you know, when he was a young man and, and the kinds of roles that he had to play to start to just be acknowledged as being a great actor who happens to be black and not just in roles of Shakespeare, but Chekhov and all of these other roles. I, I think today, because the proliferation of cable and film, the generation today watches film and television and that's what they want to do um, pretty much. Whereas when I was coming up, there wasn't cable and people went to Yale and Juilliard. I went to drama school in London. And so Yale and Juilliard, you came out, you wanted to do the kind of work that James Earl Jones and all of these other actors were doing. Gloria Foster, uh, Francis Foster were doing. So, you know, it's just the way that the, the generation, the generations keep moving. Or Randy Kim. Mm -hmm. I keep saying Randall Duke Kim. Yeah. And I understand that there were plays written about Ira Aldridge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ossie Davis, the great, the late Ossie Davis, who was married to Ruby Dee, uh, wrote a play calling Mr. Aldridge. Um, there's another, um, oh, there's a Canadian uh, play. Uh, there's another play that was written by Lonnie Elder. Um, and then, of course, Red Velvet, which is only, I believe, maybe seven or eight years old now. I think it came out in 2014. I mentioned Adrian left uh, Lester previously. Uh, his wife uh, wrote the play. Uh, and uh, Adrian Lester is one of my favorites. And um, he created that role in that play. And subsequently, it's been done um, in various theaters in the UK now and um, and in the United States. I think there's a production that's getting ready to open in Washington, D.C. Uh, later. And with your own development of a one-man show about Ira Aldridge, can you tell us something about why you felt that would be a good role for you to inhabit, a good project to undertake? 
I think because I've been very lucky and I've been very fortunate to have traveled all over the world and how I have met so many people who I have just resonated and clicked with. Actors are actors. If someone would have told me 15, 20 years ago I would have close friends in Russia, I would say, are you kidding me? You know, all over the world, and it's about the human connection. It's about the spurring of consciousness, and it's about the human experience in the broadest possible way. That's why I got into the theater. I wanted to express myself in a different way that I couldn't do in my normal life. Uh, really, um, I knew that I had a greater sense of expression that I was that wasn't given particular leeway. And I think because you know, with Aldridge touring at that time and the friendships that he made in these countries and these accounts of people talking about the love that they felt for this man, that's phenomenal. And so that speaks to me. That really just speaks to me. Um, if and, and I have a, a piece that if you'll let me, uh, if you'll indulge me to read. Um, Please. Uh, of, a, of a piece. I'll just set it up. It's a little this piece. This is from your show uh, about Ira Aldrich. Mm-hmm. Of uh, an elderly rabbi who approaches um, Aldridge after he has performed Shylock. Um, in the Merchant of Venice. And so this rabbi is um, fighting his way through the crowd, and of course, you know, they want to throw him out. And what is he doing? Disrupting all of this stuff in the midst of, you know, this disturbance is heard, you know. So, and Aldrich tries to make light of it. But he says, you know, have I said something wrong? And then um, the rabbi enters, um, you know, with shrugging off some official that's tried to throw him out. And I'll just read this. Of course, the rabbi. I'll do both voices of the rabbi and uh, Aldridge. This should... Excuse me, Mr. Aldridge. Please, excuse me. Friends, I, I won't give you a moment. Please, m- Madam, translate what I say. Please. Thank you, Mr. Aldrich. I was told I could not see you, and I hope you will forgive this unorthodox behavior from an orthodox rabbi. I am Rabbi Itzhak ben Zvi, a rabbi of a small congregation just outside of St. Petersburg. And, sir, I do not wish you harm. I'm sure you do not, Father. Are you all right? I know this is such bad manners, Mr. Aldrich, but uh, I represent several congregations in the Jewish community who want to thank you for your moving portrayal of Shylock. You have shown him Honestly, with his horns and his halo. It gives us pride and hope, Mr. Aldrich. And so I would like to present you with this scroll from several hundred well-wishers. And this specially made necklace. It is our Star of David. Our homes will always be open to you, good friend. Shalom. Shalom, Father. You 
do me great honor. I like the way you have those two characters find common humanity there, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just thinking as you were reading that, Barony, because I know you've traveled all over, like you mentioned, with Fulbright Awards everywhere and, you know, all over the place performing. And I was thinking about what layers will will happen when you perform your one-man show about Ira Aldridge in, let's say, St. Petersburg or somewhere else, where you come out of your own journey from Harlem to internationally recognized actor and scholar, and then you're performing about Ira Aldridge, who came from New York, like you, um, and, and crossed the Atlantic. I was just thinking about the sort of the way Shakespeare has a play within a play. It will seem to me like your show will be a show within a show. That's very good. That's very good. I've been thinking more and more of framing it along those lines. And because I've been so fortunate in my travels to really, if I may tell a a little story, I'm going to try to speed it up. I, my friend Yuri, who's Russian, he was my translator on one of my trips to find, um, in um, St. Petersburg, to find a great actor's grave by uh, Mikhail Shishipkin, who was friends with Aldridge. And I wanted to pay my respects to Shipkin's grave. And so when we went to the, we found the churchyard, Yuri found the, Yuri found the churchyard, and the groundskeeper didn't speak any English, of course, and he was fascinated by me standing up there with Yuri, and Yuri told him who I was. And I told Yuri, I asked Yuri, I said, please translate for him why I'm here. And in the midst of the translation, the groundskeeper was so touched by my story of coming all the way there to find and pay my respects to this grave that he opened up and showed me other graves of other famous acting dynasties that I knew of their names, but I didn't know that they had been laid to rest there. And it was wonderful to have that. And when I was shaking this man's hand and he was so thankful that I had taken the time to know about his culture. It was just, it's, it, and I've had many experiences like that. And I think that's one of the things that certainly resonates with me, with Aldridge, of how the language of theater is about the human experience and about expression and communicating that human experience. That's why we, during the pandemic, or coming out of the pandemic slightly now, uh, audiences have been starved for this kind of communication. Actors and musicians and artists have been silenced. And so now audiences are coming to feel that communication and experience that communication, uh, that, you know, that, that, that one-on-one communication. And, and so it's been fabulous. Well, it's been fabulous talking to you. My guest has been Baron Kelly, professor of theater and drama, and we've been talking about Ira Aldridge. I'm Emily Auerbach, and I hope you'll join me for the next hour of University of the Year.